I love to study etymology. Now, if you think that's the study of bugs, that's entomology. <laughs> etymology is the study of the origin of words. And I love to study that. And I love to study the origin of phrases. I was telling the guys that I pick up on Sunday morning from downtown uh, that there are phrases none of us ever really know where in the world came from. Like there's more than one way to... Well, whoever came up with that saying, I'd, I'd love to know it. But anyway, put up on the screen a series of numbers. I asked them, I said, guys, does anybody in this car know what this particular means? Is that up there four feet, eight and one half inches? Now, if you've heard me preach this before, you may have remember what this is. But very few people in this world know what that refers to. Four feet, eight, one half inches. See, a lot of things we see and hear, we just take for granted. We don't really know why they are the way they are. Why they are the way they are. Now, I'm going to turn that to a spiritual thought, believe me, in a little bit. What is four feet, eight, one half inches wide? Well, you may not know. Anybody here think that? Just raise your hand. One person, two people. Yeah, because you Googled it. John didn't. Yes, you did, son. You Googled it. I told you not to Google it. But he's just so smart. But he may have heard this before. But that's the width of railroad tracks in the United States of America. Four feet, eight and one half inches wide. Now, you didn't know that because you've never taken a measuring tape out to find that out. But you can check me on this if you'd like. Every railroad in the United States of America, standard size, is four feet. The tracks are four feet, eight and one half inches apart. But have you ever wondered why? Well, of course you haven't. Because only a brain like mine, my wife says I'm filled with useless trivia. I'm the only kind of person that ever looks up things like this and wonders things like this. It's a mental illness on my heart. American railroads were based on what system of railways? the British system of railways. So every British railroad track, guess how far apart it is? Four feet, eight, one half inches. Why did they base their rail, why did they make their railroad tracks four feet, eight, one half inches? Why not four, nine, or why not five? Well, because they based it on an earlier system of trolleys. And the wheels of those trolleys were four feet, eight, one half inches wide. Well, why were those trolleys four feet, eight, and one half inches wide? Because they based those trolleys on the ruts that were already in the road. Why were the ruts four feet, eight, and one half inches wide? Because that was based on an earlier road system that was built by the Romans who occupied all of southern New England and southern England. New England, they occupied up there too. But anyway, England, and you may remember there's a Hadrian's Wall in the north part of England that separates that which they conquered and that which they never could conquer. They could never get the Scots to line up. But the Romans built the road system and their war chariots would make ruts in the road that led to the trolleys, that led to the English train system that led to the American train system. And why did they make the Roman war 
chariots, four feet, the, the wheels, four feet, eight and one half inches apart. Because that was the distance of the rear end of two Roman war horses. Think about it. So even today, that, when we, that which we do, and I have to cross those tracks over there all the time, they're four feet and eight and one half inches wide. Why? Because of the rear end of two horses. <laughs> now you know. Now you know why. I think it's important to know the why of a lot of things. Now let's segue into a more spiritual time. Why are you here today? Why do I even have, and I wouldn't call it a right, the privilege to preach before you today? Because I'm not worthy. Truth is, none of us are, are we? It's because of the shed blood of Jesus. Because of what he did on the cross. The reason that song was so emotional for me uh, because I was trying not to watch the video and I can't watch those kinds of videos and not cry. Just the way I am. But His grace still amazes me. Why are we here? Well, let's see what the Gospel of John says about it. Chapter 19, beginning with verse 28, going through 42. Let's see the story of Jesus' atonement. Let's see why we are here spiritually today. Okay? Why? It says in chapter 19, and yes, I was in the book of Philippians for a little while, but remember before that, for since time immemorial, I was in the gospel of John. And I stopped it because I wanted to come back toward the Easter season to finish it. Thus, our rejoining the sojourn in John. After this, Jesus, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar filled with sour wine. It was a type of vinegar wine, by the way. Not that I would know what wine is. But it was sitting there. So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop, which is a, a long pole-like stick. And they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken. What men? Jesus and the two criminals crucified beside him. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this testified so that you may be also may believe. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
What scripture? Old Testament prophecy. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also another scripture says they look will look at the one whom they pierced. Old Testament scripture coming to fruition. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took the body away. Nicodemus. Now, we've met Nick before, haven't we? He always approached Jesus at night. I've told you I want you to watch the TV series called The Chosen, which is referring to the chosen disciples. They do one of the greatest examples of portraying Nicodemus I've ever seen. And Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of 70, about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the aromatic spices according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden, one no one had yet been placed in. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Two things today. I won't preach long, probably. Two things. First of all, his death brings to life the old covenant. It brings to life the old covenant. Now, in this point and the next, I'm going to ask you first with me to look at the events and then the meaning of the events. So first, what are the events of this particular thing? So the Bible says in verse 28 through 30 that Jesus was crucified. Now go ahead and put the picture up there if you would, please. Actually, this is a picture that I took some years ago of the place called Golgotha. Now it's hard to see it, but if you will imagine with me just a moment, this is a limestone cliff and it's degrading. In fact, it's degraded since I took this picture. And that's what limestone does. But when this was first re discovered in the 30s by a British man who was sitting looking out over this, he could see distinctly the what he thought were the skull, the eyeball places, as you see the dark conditions, and then at what looked like a nose uh, portion, looking like a skull. And many people believe this was the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. In Latin it is Calvary, i.e., which we get Calvary with the Y. But there Jesus was taken to be crucified with two others. Now, I know you can't see some of you back row Baptists really having trouble in the balcony. People just give it up. But anyway, you could see a structure on top of this. And I said to my Sunday school class just a while ago, one of the reasons why I believe this to be the place of Jesus' crucifixion was because I believe the Muslims believed it. During the crusade period, remember your history, uh, both Christians and Muslims fought for control of the Holy Land and it went on for a long, long time, over, I think, two centuries, maybe three. And the Christians would take over the Holy Land, then the Muslims. And the Muslims had it for hundreds of years after the end of the crusades. 
One of the things the Muslims would love to do is to defile any place which they felt was holy to Christians. So do you know what's on top of Golgotha? A Muslim graveyard. That's the wall of the structure you see on top of this cliff, this limestone cliff. You see a Muslim graveyard. So I believe it's one of the reasons I believe this was the place where Jesus was crucified because I think the Muslims believed it too and they wanted to make sure it was defiled. Now we don't know if Jesus was crucified on top of the hill or down below the hill. Now we sing the song On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Right? We don't really know that he was crucified on top of the hill. Some scholars think he was crucified at the bottom so that people on the road below would see him so clearly and walk by and throw things at him. That was the way the Romans did things. So it may have been on the top, may have been the bottom. I believe it's where Jesus was crucified. Well, there were two groups of people present. Who were those two groups of people present at the crucifixion and burial? One were Jewish believers, followers of Christ who were Jewish in their faith originally. And then the rest, of course, we know were Roman soldiers. Well, they attempted to give Jesus this vinegar wine, which was an analgesic, meaning it was a, a deadening, a deadened pain. And so they had some compassion on him and they tried to give it to him, but he did not drink it. We know from another gospel, but they touched it to his lips and it at least gave him the ability to shout out that phrase, which in English is stated to be, it is finished. But in Greek, it was tetelestai. That's the title of this message to Telestai. It means it is done. Now we don't know that word. We don't use that word in our language of course. But in Jesus' time, when that word was used, there was a context. For example, when an artist would finish painting a picture, the artist, if he or she were satisfied, would say, to Telestai, it is done. When a servant would fulfill a task for the master the done rightly then he would come in and say to Telestai it is finished perhaps most importantly when a merchant would receive payment in full for his or her uh, services they would mark it down and say to Telestai it is finished when the priest would would examine the sacrificial lamb that was brought to be sacrificed if the priest saw that the sacrifice was perfect and pure and right the priest would say to tell us die it's finished Jesus died on that cross the perfect pure sinless lamb of God the ultimate lamb of God the sacrifice with no sin what did he say when the work was accomplished, the Bible says, what work? So that I can even stand here today. So that you have a right to sit in a church. He said, to Telestai, it is finished. And the Greek tense of that verb means it's done. It's always going to be done. It is finished. It is completed. It stands finished. None of the Old Testament sacrifices could claim that. They only pointed to our sinfulness. But even in the old covenant, it only covered sin. But Jesus' sacrifice took away sin. 
Jesus' sacrifice took away my sin. His death was voluntary. He willingly dismissed his spirit. He was the ransom for our sin. He was the propitiation for our sin, which means the one who took our place. He was our ultimate sacrifice. And it will take eternity to reveal all that the crucifixion has done. But I tell you, it was the central event of history. In fact, you could say the Bible's in two places, two parts. The first part is how we messed it up. And from the cross forward, what Jesus did to take care of us. To remove our sin. His death brings new life to the covenant. Second and last, his burial brings spiritual life to our existence. Look at verse 31 and following. Again, look at the details, the events, and then the meaning, please. Again, two groups of people present, Jewish believers, Roman soldiers. In a crucifixion, it was a horrible death. We talked about it earlier in Sunday school. One of the most painful deaths that can ever be experienced. As I said, the Romans were the masters at torture. They knew how to inflict maximum pain while keeping the victim conscious and alive. If a soldier messed up, he was usually beaten because if he messed up and the patient or the, the subject uh, lost consciousness, that, that was no fun. You wanted them alive so they could experience every ounce of the agony. And the Romans were the best at that terrible form of punishment. And so they did everything they could from the crown of thorns to the beating of the back to the carrying of the cross from the nails put into his wrists and to his ankles to inflict maximum pain but to keep him ever above the threshold of consciousness. The victim would go into what is called hypovolemic shock. The lungs would fill with fluid and they would try to press up with their legs to get some room to breathe. The excruciating pain of pressing against the ankles would cause them to let go. And then the pain from the wrist would continue bearing down. It was a lingering death often. And because it was fixing to be, as we say, the Sabbath day, it was Passover. They wanted to get this over and done with quickly. And so the Jews said, please, let's get them down off those crosses so we can move on with our Shabbat preparation. And so it was the practice of the Roman soldiers to go in and break the legs with a huge iron rod, inflicting even more pain, but usually ensuing a quick death. But the Bible says it was the third, it was the hour of what we would call 3 o'clock p.m. when Jesus cried out to Telestai, it's done. So it's important to note, my friends, what the soldiers did not do and what they did do. Both were absolute fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. First, they did not break the legs of Jesus. Why? Because the pure lamb sacrifice bones were never broken. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God. But they also pierced him. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. They normally did not do that. And both the blood and the water flowed from the wound. John saw a special significance in that as they witnessed the fact that he was a real man, a real body, a real person. He suffered horribly. He said he even thirst. 
they would try to end it as quickly as possible. When the soldiers were through, what happened then? Our Lord's friends took over. One commentator who I love said, rightly so, isn't it interesting, from this point on, from the point Jesus died, no unbeliever ever touched the body of Jesus. And I'm glad for that. Only those who loved him, only those who reverenced him. But we see two high-ranking officials get involved at this point. Joseph and Nicodemus. We see both of them getting involved. First of all, Joseph of Arimathea, he gets involved, doesn't he? Well, who was he? He was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the Jewish High Council, which we would call the Supreme Court, really, of Judaism. A rich, prominent member, good and righteous man. We know from other studies that he was a part of what we would call the silent minority. He was a believing minority, and he asked for the body. Now, normally when a uh, person was crucified, Pilate and the Romans were glad to say, get that body off our hands. That's one less thing we have to fool with. So they came and asked Pilate, can we have the body? He comes with his friend Nicodemus. Joseph, the Bible says, was a secret believer, fearful of the Jews. Well, I believe Jesus, Joseph was kept under cover because he feared the Jews from a divine, but from a divine standpoint, he was being protected so that when the moment of need came, he could do what he needed to do. The man who started off with confusion now becomes a man who is ready to stand with Christ in his death. So no longer is Joseph of Arimathea a secret disciple. Now he is proudly one who says, give me his body. He's my savior. And then old Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a member of the high council himself, a man who had questioned Christ. Remember how can a man be born again? John 3. A man who was always wavering. He saw what Jesus did. He loved what Jesus did. But he was still hesitant, still holding back until Jesus died. And now he steps forward. A man who always came to Jesus at night, but now in the blazing afternoon, he's willing to take a stand with Christ. Well, it seems evident that both Joseph and Nicodemus carefully planned their activities. Because of Passover and Shabbat, no one could go out and buy 75 pounds of this kind of spice. They were ready. They knew what Jesus had said. Even Nicodemus had gotten the tomb. It says it was what? Nearby. Show us the picture of that tomb if you would please. This is the garden tomb. And it's not 200 yards. I'm not real good with distance. Maybe 150 yards from Golgotha. And now it is a beautiful garden. They found cisterns underneath. Where people later had built a garden and dug these huge cisterns that hold millions of gallons of water and they water that garden even to this day from water from those cisterns. But that garden tomb that had been hewn out by Nicodemus, bought by Nicodemus for his own use. But it's an interesting, Nicodemus stays by the cross to make sure nobody mistreated the body of Christ. Here's Nicodemus, a man who was afraid and came at night and now He's willing to take his stand with the slain Savior. He stayed at the cross all the way. Well, haste was important. 
The men worked quickly to try to do the burial customs as much as they could, to wrap him in the linen cloths as much as they could. They did their best to take care of Jesus as he died. Well, I believe Jesus' death and burial gave new life to Nicodemus, gave new life to Joseph of Arimathea. I believe his death caused them to fall in love with him, for them to recognize that they were willing to stand no matter what the consequences might be. For at this moment, our Lord Jesus looked like the most terrible failure on the face of the earth. He's crucified in this terrible way. These men said, we'll stand. We'll be with him. We will not back away from standing with him. And I simply ask the last question. Should not his death and burial also transform our spiritual lives? Should it not be the focal point for what we believe? Why do you think the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I am convinced that I will preach nothing but Christ with Christ crucified. It became that seminal moment, that subtle time, that, that powerful time, not subtle, that powerful time when Paul said, I'm going to put everything on the cross because there Jesus died for you and me. So why am I standing before you today? A sinner preaching to sinners because of what Christ did on the cross. I know why. I may not know silly things like what four feet eight and one half inches mean or might. But what I do know is that Jesus loved me so much that he died. It's a beautiful old hymn. Just kind of kind of sing it. But I want you to help me with the chorus. It was written in the early days of the early 1700s by a man named Isaac Watts. So the words are old. But what does it say? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Sing it with me. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. The last verse, let me sing it for you. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Dear Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. Lord Jesus, we thank you that drops of grief can never repay, never repay the debt of love that I owe, that we owe, so I pray, Lord God, that every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place today would say yes to the cross of Christ. Lord, your grace still amazes me. Your love is still a mystery. It's something I can't understand, but I accept it. 
And may every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place and on the sound of this voice say yes to the cross. Because what you did, you did for me. You did for us. Father, I pray that you help us to respond appropriately. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.